Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring three friends stumbling through the end of Season 5. I am your uh, host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-host, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? Uh, good question. I brought down a whole stack of Girl Scout cookies and forgot to eat them before we started recording. <laughs> so now I, I just have to stare at them for the next three hours or whatever it is that it takes us to get through all these episodes. So apparently I'm an idiot is how I'm doing. With the with the switch to daylight savings time, so that means feeding the cats an hour early. But they oh, have no. <laughs> said, they have made the inference that this means that every day their food will come one hour earlier. <laughs> and I get so, where this is going. Yeah, I get where so, an idiot so cat seven, brain can extrapolate yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> one of our cats is extremely good at extrapolation from an n of one, and this is the one who is like, excuse me where's my dinner at like six so i have a funny story related to daylight savings time in my job we have reports that uh you, you that have to get generated regularly and one of the quirks of the system is that it because there could be a large amount of data you can set time like specific times so that it goes through stuff or, or because of time zones you want to set it to specific time so it's catching midnight to midnight in a certain time zone. So I had two people <laughs> that I had to help yesterday who said, system is giving me an error I've never seen before when I'm trying to generate a report. It's saying it's an invalid time. I was like, that's interesting. I, uh, what are you putting in as your end date? Oh, I'm do because I, because it's like, I'm doing this for West coast or, or on the West coast. And I need to do this for like an East coast thing. I'm setting it from, you know, Saturday at two, at three a.m. to Sunday at two fifty nine p two fifty nine a.m. and it took me a second because I was still on my first cup of coffee and I said there wasn't a two fifty nine a.m. yesterday. It's <laughs> <laughs> like I don't. I our system doesn't know how to deal with that. So I That's it just funny. says wait there was no time for this yesterday. We cannot generate the report. That's fun. That's some like. Kill an AI kind of yeah. Stuff. I was I was like <laughs> and the, and the like in the in the five years I have been doing this job, I have never had that ha like I've never had that happen before. And then I had it happen twice yesterday. Wow, uh, that's people wild. Ask me, and I was just like, it was bizarre. Uh, this listeners, this is because we don't want to talk about the episodes, I guess. But <laughs> this, this feels like really Y two K ish. Yeah, it yeah. Really I was is. gonna say it has a Y two K flavor. Or, yeah, it, it's 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 right in there with like the twenty thirty eight problem. <laughs> or listeners, if you don't know what that is, look it up. It's actually a problem. <laughs> uh, but one we have sixteen years to solve, so. Huzzah. I'm sure they'll get on that. The government's real proactive I mean, about these things. I mean, we, we survived. Y2K, like, okay, uh, well, let's digress on this before we get to the episode. Y2K was an actual problem that we solved so efficiently that it became, that it got, it became a joke about how it wasn't a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Because it's like Y2K didn't fuck up literally everything on the planet because a lot of people put in an awful lot of work. Yes. Yeah. A lot of people who did not get paid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You really don't want to do this summary for Fall of Centauri Prime, huh? Um, I mean, there's a lot that... Um, yeah, tonight we're covering uh, two episodes, and I have opened a 24-ounce can of seltzer. Uh, uh, we are covering episodes 18 and 19 of season 5, The Fall of Centauri Prime, and The Wheel of Fire. I am starting off with The Fall of Centauri Prime. This is written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by David E. Wise, which is a name I do not think we have seen before. I'd have to look, but that's my recollection as well. Yeah. We begin with the planetary bombardment of Centauri Prime. Uh, Zathras play the war crimes air horns. <laughs> uh, Londo rescues Jakar from the rubble of his cell and goes to find the regent. On White Star 1, Sheridan speaks with Garibaldi and gets an update on the situation that the Centauri are completely defenseless. Remember that they shut down the planetary defense grid and sent the fleet away? Yeah. He also tells John that Delenn's White Star is missing. Londo finds uh, the regent, and the regent reveals who he has been working with the Drock, and that Londo is now ready. The regent uh, introduces the Drock, and Lando recognizes... Lando, wow, that's that's what we haven't done <laughs> in a couple seasons. Londo recognizes them as Servants of the Shadows. The Drock describes them as aimless without the Shadows, but they remember the Centauri and Londo. The Drock are here to fulfill Mr. Morden's prophecy for revenge for destroying the Shadow Fleet. And for their revenge, they want Centauri Prime as their new home. They will take the beaten Centauri and make them servants of the Drock. As insurance, they have planted fusion bombs throughout Centauri Prime to enforce good behavior. Sheridan's White Star arrives at Centauri Prime, and he tries to force the Narn and Drazi to stop uh, their bombardment, but the Narn General declares that, per Sheridan's own statement, he would support any action that they felt appropriate. <sighs> Sheridan says that this was not authorized, and the Narn leader tells him that... Hey, we're going to need the White Stars when the Centauri fleet return. You're going to back us up, right? That whole exchange is so good. The Narn, the Narn uh, general or, or commander is completely nonplussed by Sheridan's bluster. He's just like, don't care. I'm getting to blow up the Centauri homeworld. I could not be happier. This is my yeah. third pair of pants. Like, <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, Sheridan's like, this is the exact thing that I told you not to do. And the guy's like, yes, and now you've got political coverage. Problem solved. And Sheridan's like, that's that's not how this works. You can't. <laughs> that's that's not how this works. <laughs> All right. Um, where was I? Um, on the planet, the region explains that he will not give the surrender order, but will let Londo surrender once he is dead, giving Londo the benefit of the doubt that he did not know uh, that the drop caused the war. The region says he will not hold anything against Londo when he is emperor, as he will have no choice. Londo then sees the Keeper decloak on the Regent's neck. The Regent says that he is not afraid of what is coming, and as the Keeper slides off of him, he dies. In orbit, the Centauri fleet is approaching. John says they will not engage and will try to contact someone in the Centaurum. On Delenn's White Star, adrift in hyperspace, she and Lanier analyze their situation. It's shit. Their fuel is almost gone, and soon they will be adrift in the hyperspace currents. Londo checks in on Jakar and tells him that Jakar will no longer be able to be his bodyguard. He is to be Emperor, and he doesn't know if he will ever see Jakar again. He is there to say goodbye. Londo muses that now he will have all of the power in the world, but no choices. Jakar says that the Narn can never forgive the Centauri for what they have done, but Jakar can forgive Londo. Londo goes on to the Drock, and he is implanted with a 
Keeper, which comes out of a gross little flap on the drock titty. It's bad. I've seen this horrible. And we're going to get into this, but I do want to point out that it is an eyeball with a bunch of tentacles. It is. And I just want to point out that I've been like doing a victory lap for the last 24 hours that I put the word drock titty on a summary. Yeah. <laughs> In orbit, Sheridan is hailed by Londo and Londo surrenders. He will recall the fleet. Sheridan heads down to the planet and tries to get Londo's help locating the ship. Londo demands a favor in return, and Sheridan demands reparations. Things are overall very testy. On Delenn's ship, they drift off further off course. To try to draw attention, they fire the weapons. This, however, leads to several Centauri warships approaching. Their weapons charge, and as they draw nearer, Lanier tells Delenn he loves her. However, instead of weapons fire, they are drawn into a tractor beam, and they drag them to safety. Delenn tries to console Lanier and says he will not, she will not hold anything that he said against her. Veer arrives at Centauri Prime and Londo rages at him for coming into his quarters unannounced. Londo insists that he is fine. They talk about the situation and that they cannot pay for the reparations and pay to rebuild as well. Uh, Londo then addresses the people as a huge holographic kaiju, uh, talking about the <laughs> price of lives and money if the Alliance is drawing from them. Londo makes a speech preaching isolation and revocism. And uh, it's rough, uh, sort of. Yeah, I'm talking to my colleague here to not describe it as Hitler-esque, but yeah. Lando speaks with Sheridan, Delight, and Jakar and tells them to leave Centauri Prime and appoints Veer as ambassador to Babylon 5. They depart and Lando goes to his inauguration. Back on B5, Sheridan talks to the crew about the shadow control units. Franklin discusses how the breakup of the shadows could spell more problems as other races get their hands on later technology. Zack briefs Sheridan that the fighting on the station has stopped now that they won the war. Delenn wonders, yes, they have won the war, but what did they lose? Cut to a uh, sad Londo on the throne. In the dark. Yeah. Yeah. He's just sitting in that room without any lights on, alone. It's it's real sad, honestly. Yeah. All right, let's get this away done with at the top. The Drock Keeper is a handful of dicks, of clawed dicks with an eyeball in the middle. That moves like a spider. I've seen this hentai. It's, it's a hentai monster yeah. to the Centauri. I'm just saying, I don't think that the production design thought about the fact that every time they put tentacles in something, they... They they put it around a Centauri who would view it as a dick monster. Yeah, they, it's they, never they, the Narn. <laughs> it's never the humans that have to deal with a tentacle monster. It's, it's always the fucking Centauri <laughs> that have to deal with the dick monsters. You don't see Marcus or Franklin dealing with a, a, an alien that looks like, a, you know, a giant carpet of dicks. No, it's always the Centauri with some sort of tentacle monster. I'm just saying, I don't think they care as much about this as I do. It skitters around like this like gross spider too. Yeah, it's it's, it's motion is is uh between like the motion they intended and the bad CGI, it has a very uncanny. Oh yeah, uh, the CGI game. for this is um not good. Like <laughs> yeah. uh, like giving giving the whole thing of like yes, this was 1997 or 98 or whatever. But it's still rough. It's not that it's 90, 1998 bad. It's we just had to animate a planetary bombardment. The budget's a little skinny. Do your best bad. And that's fine. It's on screen for not very yeah. long. It's 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 funny because it's like when you when you close it close up on it, like the actual like 
When you close up on its practical effect. Yeah, the practical effect for it is good. But once they have to zoom it out and have it interact with an actor standing there, it is not. Yeah. They really should have just had a puppet. Like. (laughs) I've been watching a bunch of Farscape and. uh... If they had just had somebody (laughs) standing like behind Jakar or behind Londo with a bunch of like rubber tentacles and just wave them behind him, they would have been way better off. We'll do the drock titty and then we can actually talk about relatively serious things. He peels this thing like a giant fucking skin flake, like from under his titty. And then it's like, ooh, surprise. And it turns into a spider. I have so many many questions. questions. And I want none of them answered. (laughs) What evolutionary path (laughs) leads to the drock having mind control spiders as detachable, like, meat hunks on their bodies they have to have been engineered by this by the shadows right oh yeah i have to believe that okay any other answer chills me to the bone (laughs) yeah um (laughs) that said now that we've covered the the dick monster also also i'd like to point out that the the drock are no longer like blurry which i think is a mistake i liked that so i thought that those were a servant race yeah, so there's a, a JMS Speaks note about this, that that's not the same race. Then why are they called the same thing? No, like, I think what it is is that the blurry creature that we saw is just spokesman for the Drock. Yeah. Mm, okay. The Drock are the Drock, and then there's, that was just some guy that got sent to do their business. The Drock are very big on staying, like, in the shadows and out of sight. Yeah. That's why they use the big, like, testicle face surgeon aliens and they use the blurry guys and so on and so forth yeah that said i the design on the drock is painfully boring yeah other than the the like you know titty monster if they kept the blurry look then like that was a really cool effect i really like that like Mm -hmm. you know it does have the kind of 90s cgi thing about it but it was innovative as a like alien design yeah i agree it would have made the drock seem way more ominous if they looked like that and it would make the the like the tie-in with earlier the season way clearer yeah no i agree uh but unfortunately they didn't rip uh fun fact uh a little bit of early i know that face uh guess who's under all that drock makeup hold on hold on we'll give you three guesses the first two who have the first two don't count it is oh it's wayne alexander who else plays weirdos on this show yep everyone's favorite jack the ripper and long-fingered weirdo and torture wayne alexander and torture oh, no 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 and, and uh drazi and drazi yeah that's right uh is back uh to creep out the screen this time as the drock he's really just babylon 5's doug jones yeah, kind of. That's kind of his specialty is is like the weird aliens. This episode also features I can't I I forgot to record their name, but the actor uh who plays uh Natok, the yeah. Narn commander. Uh, Robin Sachs. Robin Sachs yep, yep. has played every pompous butthole alien in the show's history. Like he played a uh not uh I think it was a Minbari prick and like a Narn butthead, and then now this Narn butthead. Didn't he play Giles's ex on Buffy too? 
Yes, he did. Yes. Yes. That is his primary claim to fame uh, is as playing uh, is on Buffy. But he's done a bunch of interesting stuff. He was also. He's Zaid Masani and Mass Effect. But yeah, uh, some interesting stuff on this episode. One uh, note I have here. At one point, Zach mentions the, the captain. And my my first thought in my, the notes was, holy shit, that's right. There's a captain on this show. <laughs> One of my things with this episode is, goddammit, I feel like Londo, with all of the character development that he's had in the last, like, season, I feel like if he didn't have the Drock there, he would actually probably be a very good emperor. And it's like, god fucking damn it. Yeah, I, I have some notes on that as well. You know, why does he have to be controlled by, like, you know, the stupid mm-hmm. dick spider? There's kind of a train of thought that like the person who's willing to do the terrible things like the sin eater right yeah mm-hmm. uh the person who's willing to do the terrible things in the name of their people is you know and not for joy but is willing to literally like commit the sins know that they're a sin but does them anyway in the name of their people uh that's a good quality to have in a leader uh and this show uh, is an interesting indictment of that theory because it, it shows Londo going through this arc where he's really willing to do anything for the Centauri people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it does suggest that he would be a good leader. Like, he does everything he can to to protect them and to save them. But he's consistently blocked by the fact that he's also kind of a terrible person. That doing those things makes him a bad person. and that has attracted the attention of the shadows. And now he's reaping that grim harvest because yeah. he's literally the Drock are on Centauri prime because of him. They explicitly yep. call out. Yeah. We remember you <laughs> Just... and ha- are here because of you. And you taught with the, with the like, you know, placing the bombs everywhere um, for mm-hmm. insurance. You taught us this. Yeah. Uh, it's a bitter bird come home to roost for Londo because he's his his planet is now hosed and it's directly because of him. He saved it from the shadows only to have it thrown to the carrion birds that came in their wake. That sucks. Yeah. I also find it very funny that it's like it, it's implied that like, I don't know, maybe the Drocker like on a, on a different like on a sideways path of sentience or something. Or that, like, they don't have, like, long-term memory or something. Because <laughs> they're like, yeah, they, we didn't think of a planet to go to, but we remembered you, you asshole. Yeah, they have an inter- There's definitely kind of an interesting way to look at that. Because they do have sort of an interesting... Um, that whole speech that the Drock gives. They have a plan, but also their plan is just, like... I don't know. We didn't really know what to do. And then we remembered you. So yeah, fuck you. Like, yeah, it's so funny, (laughs) but it's like Londo's had so much. I I think this is one of the things that like makes this particularly gut wrenching is that Londo has had so much character development in the last, you know, Mm -hmm. season or so worth of content. Like there's been so much effort put into redeeming him, showing that he's like actually learning how to be like a good person almost. Yeah. That like Jakar has clearly rubbed off on him. And then you just see that completely just erased instantly. Yeah. And it's not even that it's 
what sucks about it is it's not even that it's erased, it's that it's obviated. Yeah. And it and it makes the it makes those scenes where he's like sitting alone in the dark even even worse because you know that he's aware of what he's doing. And he's aware that it's bad. Yeah, they would be like super extra, but they they hit hard because this episode is like a really good climax to that character development because you have Londo, he saves Jakar's life from that prison and they have that great interaction and Jakar tells him, my people can never forgive yours, but I forgive you. Like what a fucking wild thing for Jakar to say to Londo after all these years. Mm-hmm. But in parallel, you also have Londo assuming, I mean, he's already like sassing the shit out of Sheridan and he's already pulling on the the mantle of this not even a little bit like this Hitler-esque. At the point that he's sassing Sheridan, doesn't he already have the the critter on him? I believe so. No, because he gets the critter. He gets the critter right before. No, not right before. It's like he he gets it right after that conversation with Jakar. Um, he goes straight from that conversation with Jakar to like, mm-hmm. you know, okay, kill me now. Like, yeah. Well, my point is just that he's he's already pulling on this mantle though. Yeah. Of. You know, all the way back to when he was defending the Centauri in in front of the Alliance and when they withdrew from the Alliance, he's already pulling on this mantle of I will do, you know, he's always been that guy that will do anything for his planet. And even though he is on a personal level worked hard to redeem himself as a as a leader of his people, he remains corrupted by his people, by by that leadership. And this episode is like the apex of that, where you have. On one hand, you have Jakar forgiving him. And on the other hand, you have him taking on this grim persona in his kaiju hologram appearance to basically declare that, like, you know, we'll stand alone and pay these reparations and come out of it stronger and more ferocious, like some real 1930s Germany sounding uh, strongman talk. And, you know, Woof. Yeah. There's the open question of how much of that is Londo speaking and how much of it is the keeper speaking, right? Yeah, and I think that's kind of the it, because it could get, you know, it's probably a bit of both, honestly. Yeah, and I, mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of why it's such a poignant climax to his sto- to his his plots, his storyline that he has achieved this personal redemption with Jakar at the same time as he has become the corrupt emperor that he, you know, that is the the opposite of that of that person that Jakar is forgiving. And we know that, you know, from War Without End, we do know that they, the two of them do meet one last time when they kill each other. Their, their relationship is not over. We don't know if there's, if they're going to meet one last time. We don't know if they, you know, shack up for the next 10 years. We don't know what the deal is. But we do know that they'll be, you know, they have at, at a minimum one one more encounter ahead of them. Yeah. For the, the last last piece of redemption of Londo. Yeah. Uh, we have something, believe it or not, even worse than Londo's political speeches to talk about in this episode. Fucking Lanier. Fucking Lanier. Oh, God fucking damn it. Or not oh. fucking Lanier. Incel Lanier. Yeah. yeah. Who, I mean... Lanier, like, 
you know, does this because he thinks that they are going to die. And then, I mean, they don't die. And I love, Delen- I love Delenn's reaction. God, with that reaction of like, I love you. I know. It's just like, fuck you, JMS. Yeah. I mean, why like, would you use that set of lines? I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a thing that like Star Wars has completely ruined it because the two times it's the two, the first two times that's used, they're perfect. Each, each separate one. Cause Leia gets to do it to Han too as well, Return of the Jedi. And that's just as important. Oh. <laughs> Wait, yeah. This is a Star Wars podcast now. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, it's yeah, but like that, this this that pair of lines has been ruined forever for all others. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, this is uh, don't love it. It's it's not like active hate, but it's just like don't love it. I don't love anything about what they're doing to Lanier. Like well, I don't hate anything about the scene in abstract. Yeah. But the direction that they're giving Lanier, and it's not just this director, it's the way that they are moving Lanier through this plot where he's simmering with discontent and like resentment and all these interactions with Delenn. I'm not into it. It's gross, and I'm not into it. There's a thing that maybe, I mean, maybe Apocrypha, but like that I'm pretty sure is not. But I've heard that the Lanier being in love with Delenn was at Bill Mooney's request. Which, uh, God, what awful taste. (laughs) And um, that JMS was like, okay, fine, but you aren't going to like it. And so this is the punishment this is Lanier's punishment for that god Uh, if that's true jms is a tool bag at at the same time it's like Lanier is being like you know his incel metamorphosis self but then you have delenn who's who is still delenn in that moment yeah that you know they they realize that they're going to survive and she's just like hey you know it's cool, man. Like, you know, I felt I felt flattered by this. And well, first she's like, I'm sorry. I heard something weird. What was that? I don't, I'm not sure what I heard there. And he's just like, really, Delenn? Is this how we're going to handle this? You're just going to pretend you didn't hear me. And and then she's like, you know, this is this is flattering. And like, you know, the, I, I feel like she like handles it in a very compassionate way. But she does. Yeah. But also like, God damn it, Lanier. Mm hmm. Ugh, God. Yeah. Yeah. The the one the one thing I have to say for Londo too is that even even throughout like all of this, he's still protecting Veer. Yeah. Yeah. He gets Veer the hell out of there as, as soon as he possibly can. And yeah, you know, that might be possibly like they they have the prophecy saying that they they both be emperor. One will be emperor after the other dies. So Assuming that comes true, Londo knows that Veer will be emperor after him. And you know, I think he realizes that Veer has the chance to be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If he can keep Veer away long enough to solve the Drock problem. Yeah. Maybe Veer won't get one of these yeah. things. Keep Veer away from the palace, you know, keep him safe and keep him being exposed to like other cultures and yeah 
being yeah. our good good boy yeah learning how to learning how to govern away from centauri yeah yeah although i i i have to admit i'm super skeptical how anybody decides that veer is the right person unless londo just dictates it like it's not clear how the emperor is how like secession happens well we see we sort of see that in the in war without end right that jakar and londo kill each other and veer happens into the room and like the whole world is on fire basically like whatever Mm -hmm. horrible thing with the drock has clearly come to pass and veer just like picks up the like necklace thing and just rolls with it Londo does not have an heir. So once it comes to that, I think it is much more political wheeling and dealing. Well, yeah. Well, what I wonder is, does he at some point like make Veer his heir? Yeah. In lieu of an actual heir, as opposed to like, you know, because I think it must be, I, I seem to recall them saying that like the reason they picked Londo was because the previous emperor didn't have an heir. Yeah, well, no, no, no. I mean, it was like it was decided for a while that, like, he was going to be regent, and then Londo was going to be emperor once the regent passed. Yeah, it, no, yeah. But I mean before that. I mean, I think that's just, I think that's just like political decisions over what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I had a thing. I had a thing that like we, I think, would be good to talk about, particularly in light of current events. At the end of the episode, Franklin. You know, has his mm, little yeah, speech his thing San Diego about, thing. You know, about yeah. San Diego and war advancing technology and specifically war advancing weapons technology and talks about like the breakup of the USSR. And apparently San Diego is bombed with like a leftover nuke from the USSR. A leftover Soviet era nuke, is yeah. Not how not how nuclear material works, but okay. I mean, uh, so far as like his, as the actual historical record shows, there are six, uh, I believe there are six missing Soviet nukes that we know of. But at this point, at this point, a lot of the material has uh, been depleted based off of the half-lives, you know, based yeah. on the half-life of the material. I could be they smacked a couple of them together. <laughs> possibly. Possibly. I, and it's very possible that it's that like... The, the nuke of San Diego is not a proper nuke, but a dirty bomb. Well, he talks about the ruins of, of San Diego. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, or it's possible that JMS doesn't know how the half-life of the plutonium core of a, of a Soviet-era nuclear weapon Yeah, I, though I, I think in that sort of case, it's just like you could hand wave it by saying, like, they probably put a couple together. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I think it's, uh, it is an interesting point, though. Like, his point is well is well made in that scene. Man, I hate I hate how like sensible Franklin is in these couple of episodes. Okay, now I'm curious which one is the which one is the weapons one two thirty eight or two thirty five? I think eight. Okay, because now I'm curious what the half life of plutonium two thirty eight is. It's eighty seven years, so San Diego gets nuked in the late twenty first century. So you probably only need like two or of... three nukes. Yeah, but like a sub a substantial amount of it will have degraded by that point i mean if the half-life 87 years that's you probably need three or four like just yeah this is back of the napkin math here but you could probably stick a couple of them together and you'd have just, enough to just duct tape it just du- yeah. just duct tape it I, I, I assume that's how nuclear weapons work is that like 
is that like if if RTSs have taught me anything, is that <laughs> the upgraded version of one thing is six things stra- uh, duct taped together. Yeah, but uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's like oh hey, like I the the other thing you can call you can refer to is paperclip of like how a bunch of German rocket scientists became hired by the Americans and Russians and. And that that came over, but um, who know? Or who knows? Maybe maybe in the B five timeline, the the breakup of the Soviet Union was even was even shittier than it was in real life. Hmm. Uh, side uh, a quick, I I, I did yeah. a little googling. The primary weapons grade material is plutonium two thirty nine. Okay. Uh, which has a half life of twenty four thousand years. Wait, really? <laughs> uh okay yeah but that's a, a relatively more recent yeah uh it's more cheaply produced than the highly enriched enriched weapons grade uranium 235 i don't know like the timeline you, you uranium 235's half-life is 700 million years that's- so i don't know i think it probably depends on what material was being used in soviet yeah. bombs uh it may be that they were using a less potent uh, or a, a less long-lived uh, material. But certainly the ones that they are using right now aren't going nowhere. Cool. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Way to make that material stick around. So, yeah. I have learned so much about war crimes doing this podcast. <laughs> uh, by the way, shout out to podcast friend of the pod, uh, Scott Paladin and the N7 Project, for their, for, uh, which is a Mass Effect replay podcast, for having their first mention of war crimes on their show. Blah, blah, Congratulations, blah. Scott! <laughs> yeah, can we can we get a war crimes horn, an honorary war crimes horn for Scott? Uh, this is two now. Are we good here? Should we move on to the next yeah. episode? Yeah, uh, I want to preface this by saying I legitimately did try to keep this episode summary brief, but this is there's a lot going on in this episode. It's not my fault. Uh, anybody need a bathroom break? No. Okay, I warned you. Jakar arrives back on B5 and is greeted by some woman wearing an Earth Force uniform. He seems to recognize her, but I guess this is a plot hole because we're obviously supposed to as well, but I sure don't. Uh, She informs him that there are some Narns in customs waiting for him, and he hopefully assumes it's just a few Narns, and muses that his time on Centauri Prime must surely have tamped down the cult of personality around him. They enter customs to find it fuck full of Narns, waving flags, statues, and icons of Jakar chanting his name. Later, Franklin visits Jakar and finds the hall outside his quarters literally swarming with said followers, one of whom gives him a sweet little statue-slash-action figure of Jakar. When he rings for entry, Jakar shouts to be left alone, and is, he is only admitted when Jakar realizes that he's not one of his new horde of devotees. Franklin tells him that the Ka sent him to check on Jakar. Half of the Narns want him to come home and run the place. The other half want him to come home and bless it. Meanwhile, the station is being flooded with Narns, to the point where he can't stay there much longer. He feels trapped without options. Elsewhere, Zack enters Sheridan's old captain's office to talk to that woman from the start of the episode that we don't recognize. I guess maybe she's pretending to be the captain now? Weird. Anyway, turns out Earth Force security has added one and one and figured out that all the terrorist attacks against the Psychor targets with Remember Byron messages left in their aftermath are being funded by his ex-girlfriend, Lita. They are ordered to arrest her. This'll go fine. 
The captain and Zack find Lita on the Zocalo, where she's meeting with an arms dealer, right out in the open, super cash. They move to ask her to come in for questioning, which is a pretty horseshit cover for arrest. But notice that as she drums her fingers on the table while asking what exactly the charges are, so does every single person in the area. She bluntly refuses to go with them and says she's done a lot for B5 and she's tired of being treated like shit. I'm paraphrasing. She's a lot more eloquent than I am. And as she does so, the entire crowd mirrors her every action. Further, she says they really can't stop someone touched by the Vorlons, at which point Sheridan, himself tinkered with by the Vorlons, puts a gun to her head and reminds her of this fact. He orders her to release all the people, and when she does so, as soon as her guard is down, the captain knocks her out. Later, she says to Garibaldi that the situation is untenable. Her powers are growing, so they can't keep her on station, but if they send her home, it'll be, it, she'll end up in pieces. They end up sticking her in the most remote cell that they can, and Franklin and Sheridan observe her and muse on what to do. Sheridan, both an idiot and an asshole, can't fathom what could be making her so angry. Franklin, fucking Franklin of all people, is the voice of empathy and reason here, and I hate it. Sheridan is pissy because everyone is in a bad mood. Londo, Garibaldi, and now Lita. He says that if anyone else comes in in a bad mood, he's going to shoot himself. Delenn then barges in swearing about Narns, who say they will boycott B5 until they send Jukar home. She's so angry she faints. In Med Lab, Franklin drops a truth bomb on Sheridan. She's fainted because she's pregnant, and her half-human, half-Minbari body is struggling to manage that state. Sheridan, flabbergasted, asks a lot of questions that boil down to, I guess we'll see what happens and really should have been asked while she was awake to be there and participate in the discussion, you patriarchal shitwagons. In Lita's prison cell, Garibaldi stops by to chat. He starts with a little light banter, then cuts to the chase. In exchange for tearing out the blocks that Bester put in his head, he'll use Edgar Industries' leverage to spring Lita, on the condition that she leaves B5. She says it's not enough and counter-offers. We don't hear this offer right away and instead see Garibaldi pitching part of it, that all the money she got from Jakar will be put into trust to help telepaths. Jakar hears this too and offers to help solve the how do we get rid of her problem. He needs to get off the station as well. He plans to fuck off into the universe to look for some new truths to learn and suggests that she come with him. Feels like a thing you should ask her, guys, again. Making plans and having discussions about women without them in the room. I'm gesticulating in frustration. Back in his quarters, Garibaldi flashes back to the actual deal he made. The account he told Lockley about is a fake. Lita says she doesn't know how to use the money she has, she has to hurt the core, but Garibaldi does. So he'll use the real account to do just that. If he's done a good job in two years, she'll take the block out. Garibaldi agrees, but wants to know how she's become so powerful. She tells him that she's only now understanding it but she's basically a Vorlon leave-behind weapon, primed to go off in their absence. She is, she says, the telepathic equivalent of a thermonuclear weapon. And then her eyes do a really bad glowy effect. <laughs> in our B is for booze plot, Garibaldi, nursing a bottle, having clearly taken Zach's request to clean his shit up to heart, uh, is barely awake when he gets a call from his ex telling him that he's about to miss an important meeting drunk as a skunk he's forgotten what time it's at and has to show up smelling like a discount distillery and when he's called on to go up and give a report he can't even keep the words minbari and centauri straight 
which in fairness do sound a little bit alike now that, you know, now that he's said them like that, I feel like that's a reasonable mistake to make when you're pickled. Uh, Sheridan dismisses the meeting, calls Garibaldi out and tells him to stay while he talks to Dylan in the hall, leaving Baldi standing shamefaced alone in the room. I could not love that scene more. Garibaldi just standing there with his head hanging, looking like a scolded child while everybody leaves the room to talk you about it. You need to him. mention the fact that Sheridan drops the most, the most brute, the most brutal sentence in dad history. Well, he, I'm getting, I'm, it's literally the next thing I'm going to say. When he returns, he gives Garibaldi a literal, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. Oof. He says the actual words. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. And Garibaldi is like, it's like Sheridan just slapped the shit out of him. He looks, his reaction is so like, could, could you not just yell at yeah, me, please? He, he wants Sheridan to yell at him because then he will like be vindicated and can like get defensive. And we, and we get into that with the, um, yeah, with Lockley's yeah. talk, which we'll get to. Uh, he suspends Garibaldi until he sobers up. Predictably, Garibaldi goes home to drink and sulk, which is where uh, he is when Lockley shows up. And in the face of his pathetic snark and a grand mall hissy fit, he dr- she drops some of her personal history on him. Her father was a frustrated artist who uh, ended up in the military and became an alcoholic. And consequently, so was she. Uh, it took the death of a good friend of hers for her to sober up and eventually she joined the military. Later, it transpires that the captain has catfished Lees into coming to B5 on behalf of Garibaldi, who seems confused but pleased to see her back. This whole... <laughs> I have some thoughts about this particular plot, but we're going to let it go for now. Uh, back in his quarters, it seems like Garibaldi fesses up to what's going on, but then says he doesn't want to go back to Mars with her to sober up, but rather to get himself totally cleaned up first, which is stupid. And she says so. She says that they could use, she could use his help in sorting out Edgar's industries. He accepts her offer, particularly after everyone decides they are leaving. Jakar, Londo, Delenn and Sheridan are going, are going away. Franklin is leaving. Lita's leaving. And he decides it's time for him to go too. And he starts out this relationship by lying to her and using her resources to, to wage a private war against the Psych Corps. Relationships are built on trust. <laughs> this episode, wow. Uh, what do you even say? I'm, um, I'm so mad that we are finally getting some decent scenes for Lockley in episode 19 of this season. Yeah, <laughs> this is the first time she has seemed Who? like a human being, practically. <laughs> Who are we talking about? <laughs> Lockley. Which one's that? Jude. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm right there with you. Yeah, I I just can't care at this point. I appreciate the point you're making, but I just he we just haven't gotten enough of her, and I just I just can't care about Lockley at this point. I feel like other than the personal background on Lockley and her father and her friend, who we know from the Day of the Dead episode is actually her sister. <laughs> yeah. From all of like, I feel like if you set aside all of that, I feel like it was written for Ivanova instead. The way that, the way that 
um she like the way that she banters with jakar in the intro scene the way that she like both banters with and calls out garibaldi but it couldn't have been because it's just we're so far into the season but i can see this having been like uh, a uh an outline he had in a drawer somewhere yeah, like it's it feels like it feels like it was meant to have ivanova there uh, well, okay, I, I I think that, like, this is a good, like, this is good Lock, like, Lockley's good in this episode, she's enjoyable. I think, like, the scene, like, I, I, I actually, like, like the scene where she confronts him, because, mm-hmm. you know, Lockley has not been, like, Lockley has had a lot of righteous anger about stuff in season five, but it's generally not been stuff she's been right about. <laughs> so I'm glad that she That's gets fair. to do this and be in the right for once. Yeah. She gets she gets to be both right and and loud at the same time, once. Yeah. That's fair. Um, yeah, I also, get it. Where the fuck was the Lando or the Franklin and Jakar theology show for like the first four seasons? I know, right? Right. So good. Like, uh. like for two for 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 characters that for like the first like three seasons did not interact much at all. The the chemistry that uh, Katsulis and Biggs. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Richard Biggs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that they have is fantastic. And especially because it's just like their their relationship when like they do not have or their professional relationship is doctor patient, not we work together. And I find that interesting because it's like it's really the only one of those in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, because like Franklin and Jakar do not work together. Like Jakar is Franklin's patient. And, like, he's the only, and that's really the only extensive, or I guess, like, Veer and Lanier a little bit, but they still work together. Yeah. Or their jobs are the same. But, like, the fact that, like, pretty much Franklin and Jakar's relationship, apart from, like, a doctor-patient thing, is pretty much entirely personal and spiritual, I find that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And season five, Franklin is honestly a real solid character. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. All the religious stuff that happens in this episode, I think Jakar trying to evade his, as Justin puts it, space pope destiny is is fantastic. Yeah. I love his scene in the captain's office where he's talking about why he needs to get out of there and what the fate he's trying to avoid. I think that's great. I, I love I, that. I also like that I feel like the relationship between Jakar and Franklin is builds nicely on some of the relationship bits between franklin and marcus that like the two of them had some really good scenes together Mm. where you know and marcus had a philosophy that's not that dissimilar from jakar's Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's playing off of like some of the same conversation themes in a nice way no yeah i totally get that so there's a couple of like threads in this episode that i think we got to cover one is the resolution of the Jakar and Lita problems. Mm-hmm. And the other is like the general Lita thing. General Lita. So the second of those, like Lita's, the answer to since when can Lita like look in tunnels and blow up cameras and just kind of do whatever she wants with her brain? The answer being the Vorlons made her like thermonuclear. <laughs> telepath psionic whatever is do you know what i realized earlier today is that she's gene with the phoenix force 
Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I realized earlier, and I'm like, well, yeah, this is happening, well, I guess. That's fine. I feel like they that's basically fine. gave her Vorlon-level telepathic powers. Yeah. That they they made her yeah. a Vorlon, or at least, like, they made her as close as they could to making her a Vorlon. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's what it is. And I don't hate that. I just would have been nice to have some hints that were not just like, let's just have her do telepath stuff that's completely fucking hopeless. Listen, that would involve um, Lita having a plot line of her own that was not, Lita doesn't have a job, so she's going to get evicted for the last like season and a half. It's uh, so, like, I, I'm just convinced now that Lita is the most frustrating thing for the last two seasons of the show. I. Love that Lita has completely run out of fucks yeah. in this yeah. episode. It's very validating that finally the writers, like that JMS has recognized how badly he's treated Lita. And he's like, okay, now Lita's going to like say it. And she's just like, I saved your station a few times. And what did I get? Evicted? Like, yeah. fuck you guys. Uh, I love that. And yeah, she's fantastic. Maybe maybe this is why she is so angry. Like lists all of the things, and and like Franklin misses all of the bits where the B five staff specifically fucked her over. He skips all of those. Yeah, and it's no, still he doesn't. Yeah. like a laundry list, a good yeah. list. Yeah, it's a it's still a perfectly valid list of reasons why she might be the way she is, even if you leave off the fact that all of them have been have yeah. done her dirty. And then Sheridan's like. Nah, couldn't be that. She's just being bitchy. Like, man, fuck you, Sheridan. Yeah. God, I hate I hate Meanwhile, that. Meanwhile, we got some like decent Sheridan in this episode. Yeah. yeah. The bit with him and there is a bit in this episode, in that very scene, where he's like complaining that like everybody's gotten cranky and angry. And he's like, What is it? Like, what is going on here? The next person who comes in <laughs> pissy, I'm gonna shoot myself. And, <laughs> and Delenn comes and Delenn comes in and says, Bastards. And Frank and he's like, did she just? She did. I'll get the gun. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's just the banter there is yeah, so good. Yeah. And the the his conversation with Garibaldi also feels like yeah, it's old it feels like Sheridan. the kind of like season three dad energy. Yeah, yeah. I, that's that was a note that I made. Uh, was that like that scene is very much like a glimpse of old Sheridan, specifically him saying like. I try not to make the same mistake twice. Mm-hmm. That was very like season three Sheridan. Like, like you said, data, like the good yeah. dad energy, yeah. not the loafers in my bathrobe dad energy. Fucking lo- <laughs> loafers. Yeah. Uh, and then the scene at the very end where he's like staring at Delenn and she's like snarking at him. She's like, you stare at me like you've never seen a pregnant half Minbari, half human hybrid before. <laughs> it's just like yes that's precisely what he's staring at you like <laughs> i mean no he hasn't and he's also never had a kid before you want to cut the guy some slack like i know he's a butthead but you want to give him like one minute of well and of that break, felt like they you know? that felt like their old banter though like you know where yeah it's good no i know it's good it's a yeah. it's good like, jokes it like, felt like of course yeah. he's staring at you it felt like we got some of the old sheridan back which was nice yeah there was a lot if it weren't for the fact that one of the principal storylines in this episode was how shitty everyone has been to lita this would be a really enjoyable episode for season five 
I have really mixed feelings about the the resolution of the Lita and Jakar problems. Basically, like just having them fuck off out into space. I love the idea of Jakar and Lita going and off into their space way the to explore and yeah, fuck. Yes, like- thank you. You beat me to it. They're gonna go get. They're gonna take the 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 horny express and just fuck across the stars. And I am into that. But also, as a watcher of this show, like I'm gonna miss. I'm going to miss Jakar and I'm going, but I appreciate that now Lita will be somewhere where people can't just (laughs) relentlessly abuse her goodwill. Uh, Yeah. So I think it is like, this is a point where it's like, there are three episodes left. Like they are packing up their things to let everybody go. And this is a, Hey, JMS pitching it to himself for a future thing of like, maybe Jakar and Lita have a bone down adventure on some weird planet and I'll write a book for it someday. Jameis will not write a book for it someday. <laughs> there's there's there is some I would read that fanfic. Have you though. read the wiki on what they get up to? No, I have not. I, I, I learned that Lita dies like shortly after the series, like very quickly after the series. La 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 la. Yeah, no, I choose to ignore it. She she uh According to the wiki, whether you care about that or not, she dies after the the telepath war. She leads the assault on one of Bester's strongholds where he's storing his popsicle girlfriend and she dies there. Don't love that. Which doesn't make any sense if she's like the super telepath, but whatever. I I choose not like nobody's ever told us what the telepath war is. So I choose to believe that it doesn't exist. Yeah. And therefore this doesn't happen. Yep. Uh, (laughs) The thing is of all like. The telepath war, not the novels that outline the telepath war, uh, are a wacky balance between like legitimately good, like '90s Star Wars EU quality <laughs> books, with like, hey, remember that stuff I told you about where the where telepaths come from with like the weird telepathic cave people? Yeah, that's that's where that comes from, like. It's a real, it's a real grab bag of ideas. Uh, but then you also get like Bester in space, Argentina, <laughs> like hiding out after the telepath war. So wild. It's, the, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. yeah the, the relationship that they've already like started to establish between Lita and Jakar is like the one thread I could think of as like why Jakar might suggest this as an idea. Yeah. You know, I could definitely see them lying in bed and like being like one of two. I was going to say one of yeah. two threads. The other is yeah. horny. And, but I could definitely see them know. like lying in bed and being like, hey, you know, it'd be really fun to just like explore space. Like, wouldn't it be nice if we could just do yeah. that? Yeah. No more galaxies to solve. No more rebellions to lead. Let's just go. You ever did you know there's a planet that is all desert? The whole thing. It's just one desert. Isn't that weird? Who's ever heard of a of a single ecosystem on a planet? That's bizarre, right? Yeah, we could go fucking the desert. Sand, it gets everywhere. Sand. Damn it! <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I beat you to that, Justin. <laughs> All right. Um, Hi, um, I'm going to start a feud with Ana now. Um, we're we're. we're <laughs> Oh, oh, I do have actually one other thing. I did. I wanted to talk about uh, Lockley catfishing Lise uh, to come to the station for Garibaldi. How, how like, 
what mental state How dare? you have to be to put yourself into to try to impersonate Garibaldi over email? Right? Like, I cannot imagine he is better over email. I can't imagine he can spell. <laughs> he doesn't have no legitimately think about this. This is a future in which you voice address everything. This is a future where he doesn't have to type anything. He can talk to the computer to do anything he needs it to do. I would bet that Garibaldi has like a third grade spelling writing uh, ability. I don't love this. That would be my guess. Uh, but the whole thing with Lee's is, is like just sketchy as fuck. And we don't have to get into it. We've this this episode is already running long. Uh, we can just say that yeah. it's it's not great. Uh, he sits down and plans a life with her and he literally agrees to it. And the next thought he has is. I'm going to go plan some shady shit behind your back. That's the that's the Garibaldi we know and do not love. Yeah. yeah. All right. We got anything else we want to talk about with this episode? I think that the yeah. only thing I have is like, still, John, why don't you remember going to the future? John? I mean, I, I, I choose to believe my theory that he thinks he has changed time. <sighs> JMS expressly answers this in uh, a JMS speaks for this episode. And the, the gist of it is uh, he got the shit kicked out of him, lands, he, he lands in the future. The first thing that happens is he gets the shit kicked out of him. He's there for a few minutes in which a bunch of wild stuff happens. And since then, he's done a lot of wild stuff like blow up Zaha Doom and die and a bunch of shit's happened. I, yeah, and he's I like, mean- I don't know how the future works. So he's like. I saw a future. Was it the future? Was I like, man, I don't fucking know what's going on. Like, so I, I respect both that like his incredulity at like Delenn being able to get pregnant is like, you saw a future in which this happened. Like maybe p- surprised that it happened now, but less like, can she be pregnant? Like, I don't know. But yes, I get your point. But also like JMS is very like, why do you guys keep harping on this? And I'm like, well, maybe because you wrote it badly, man. <laughs> Doesn't John talk to Delenn about the future to some extent? You would think that they would talk about yeah, that vision, like, right? And Delenn certainly, like anything from future John vision, like Delenn would absolutely hold on to that because Mimbari are all about fucking prophecy and time travel, apparently. It would not at all strike me as a thing John would weird for it to be a thing that John would do to like not mention it because he didn't want to worry her. Still. On that note. <laughs> all right. Um, so next time we are we are we have our penultimate episode. Woof. Woof. That will be episodes. That was the word I was looking for. Uh, episodes twenty and twenty one. Season 5, Objects in Motion and Objects at Rest. Until next time, be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.
Recording.